I think every every organizations that have an anthropologist, especially if they have offices across the world, because it's like you want to do business in, in certain countries, you need to be able to understand the culture and, and what, what works, what doesn't for you to for your business to flourish. So Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Stav Boutsis, who is the manager of Saudi Graduate Recruitment and Development at Kaust in Saudi Arabia. Stav, welcome to the uh, podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning and good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's great to meet you. Same here. Thank you, Jessica. Nice to virtually meet you. (laughs) Yeah, virtually. (laughs) (laughs) Stav, as always, right, we see a lot of guests on this podcast and many of whom that either Jessica and I know personally, but yet we don't know them really. And this is kind of becoming a theme of the podcast. We're always like, we've met and we've known each other for years but we really don't know you. So could you please walk us through your journey of where you started and how you got to where you are today? Okay, interesting. All right. So I started in the field of admissions, domestic admissions in 2000, um, working for Stony Brook University, where I was there for 13 years professionally and prior to that doing my undergraduate and graduate studies. So I was there for a very long time. And then after Stony Brook, I moved into the Hofstra, where I did international admissions for undergraduate and graduate. And the last six years have been in Saudi. And that brings us to about just over 20 years in enrollment management. Besides the first two years, most of them have been in international education, international student recruitment. Well, that's great. But I bet you didn't grow up thinking you're going to be an international recruiter or a student recruiter. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that before you got to Stony Brook, you know, where you grew up and what. Sure. So I was born in Athens, Greece. Uh, my parents are from Greece. I'm, I'm Greek American. And at the age of 13, my parents just one morning said, well, you know, we're moving to New York. <laughs> So the four of us, I have a younger brother, uh, moved to New York. I was 13 and I was raised in New York City in Flushing, Queens, right by the Mets and the U.S. Open. And uh, went to, I did all my studies at Stony Brook uh, University, which then I stayed in and worked there too. And I thought I was going to be what every immigrant parent wants their child to be. <laughs> There are only three professions, medical, medicine, law, and engineering. So the first one is what I thought I was going to pursue. And uh, that only lasted for about my first year of undergraduate studies. 
And then I took an anthropology class and fell in love with the field. And it's been history. You know, the rest has been history since then. I did continue with my pre-med just to make my parents happy and try to convince them that you can still go to medical school with an anthropology degree. But I, I didn't convince them. And it was definitely not what I wanted to do. So I did pursue cultural anthropology and cultural studies, which definitely helped me with recruiting international students and traveling across the globe. I feel that's quite a leap from anthropology to where you are now. And I know you worked for a while at Stony Brook. I'm really interested to find out through that time at Stony Brook, how did you get the connection to get a job in Saudi Arabia? And now you are living in Saudi Arabia, which is fascinating to me. How, oh. how did that happen? The, the job in Saudi kind of found me. And I think just like the profession founds a lot of us, kind of falls on your lap. Uh, but I was, uh, I've been traveling to the Middle East and to Saudi for a number of years. I think like 2009 was my first time in the country and have seen the country transform, but never thought about living and working here. Never crossed my mind. At some point I, I thought about the Middle East, but mostly maybe Qatar, maybe maybe Dubai, but that's about it. And and this opportunity found me and it was one of those moments like it's time. Yes, let's just take that leap of faith and, and see what happens. And of course you think, oh, you know, abroad, a year. I'll just give it a year. Then you're like, hmm, three years just so I can, you know, get to know the country and kind of make an impact. And then it's been six years since then. I'm starting year seven in September, and I have no idea where time went. And I think that's the beauty of education and admissions and recruitment, that just because you work on an academic year, it goes by faster than a calendar year. Because you think of, you think semesters, there are only two semesters, the summer, the winter break, kind of like don't count. That's true. But but hang on. So I want to go back. So you were supposed to be a pre-med major. You chose anthropology. What were you thinking while you're in college? I'm sure your parents were very happy. Oh, they were ecstatic. <laughs> My dad was ecstatic because that's exactly why he, he went to, to the U.S. for, for me to be an anthropologist. So what were you thinking? Like you're going through college, getting a degree in anthropology. What was your goal? Like what were you thinking you're going to do or where the would you go? Like yeah, the, the goal was actually to continue with anthropology, maybe do Peace Corps for, for a little bit, uh, some field work, and then and then who knows? Like I really hadn't really thought about it that far. Um, maybe some work in the UN. I not I had not it was I never thought about higher education. I, I think secretly. I, I felt like at some point, maybe I was being groomed because I was a tour guide. I was around the admissions office. And, and now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I was groomed by my supervisors. And I just never thought about that. And I graduated with my bachelor's and they're like, well, where are you? Like, why don't you just stay? Let's just <laughs> test this out a little bit. And I was like, yeah, sure, maybe I can see myself doing this. 22 years have gone by and, and this is it. There are quite a few colleagues who have come from anthropology background who are in the field or humanities or social sciences who are in the field of enrollment management. And I, I feel like this is a good 
fit for us. That's how they get you stuff. First, they give you a tour. <laughs> you're walking backward on campus, showing the buildings. And before you know it, 20 years later, you're still in international. You're still there. Coincidentally, I just read something this week. The second largest employer of anthropologists in the world, besides the U.S. government, is Microsoft. Oh, interesting. interesting. That is interesting. Oh. Yeah. So I thought it was very interesting. But anyway, I digress. I, I think every every organizations that have an anthropologist, especially if they have offices across the world, because it's like you want to do business um, in, in certain countries, you need to be able to understand the culture and, and what, what works, what doesn't for you to, for your business to flourish. So I'm, I'm all for that. Oh, just hire admissions counselors. That works too. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, this was in context of uh, understanding customer journeys. Yes. And and creating technology to help build a proper customer journey channel. So, I mean, which is absolutely on point. I never thought about it. It makes sense when you think about it. Yeah. Thinking back to your time at Stony Brook, what were some highs? What were some lows of your your time there as an admissions officer and working in international admissions? I think for every institution I've worked, all, all three of my institutions, the I mean, now I work for graduate students, so they are a different age bracket than my other two institutions at Stony Brook and Hofstra, which you dealt with high school students. But at the end of the day is is really, I think the high point is just to, to see happy students and happy families. And I think mostly with the high school students, it was all about having those blessing from the parents and and uh, you know i have to say india has been incredible in 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 that component like you meet the parents the grandparents and then as frustrating as the country could be sometimes with the traffic and all of that it's just at the end of the day where somebody says thank you or bless you for for what you do and for taking care of our children it just washes out any frustrations that you may have had throughout the year, you know, in our profession, because it's intense traveling, not being at home and just receiving those blessings. It makes all the difference. Um, so I would probably have to say that's the high or the pinnacle of, of, of my profession. The low sometimes is just sometimes convincing administrators or senior leadership to to change course and you know you know introduce new policies or dive you know emerging countries or doing something different. I think that's the the challenging part of it. But those who believe in the mission of education and and definitely international education, uh, you know, they'll need much of convincing, but you come across others that do need a lot of convincing and that could be frustrating or, you know, challenging sometimes. All those years of you traveling and recruiting stuff, are there maybe a couple of examples or things that come to mind or people you've met that it was just like, wow, this is this is worth it. Like you said, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of travel, it's yeah. you know, no sleep, you know, jet lag, all of that. Mm-hmm. But you're right, that one smile on a kid's face or that parents being so thankful right. makes it worth it. I yes, uh, and I, I I'll bring back I, I'll think of India when I think of that, and I think they don't call it incredible India for no reason because this is where I've had the closest interactions with families, and I still keep ties. So I a couple of 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 stories are 
especially moms that you know you you speak with the with the parents you've recruited their students and and then you're you know they're about to join your campus and then you'll hear the mom saying well if he's not behaving you have my permission to <laughs> you know to put them in place or you know or you know you you now you are the mother on you know on campus and it's, it's just like the trust that they you know that they they show in you and you know I mean, it's funny at the same time, but also very, very rewarding. So I've had that twice and I'm still in touch with those families. And then when everything comes in a circle, uh, three years ago, right before the pandemic, I was invited to an Indian wedding in Italy and the family had me sit at the family table. Once I got the invitation, I just couldn't, I, I immediately booked my ticket and I went and it was very emotional just to see this young lady who I've recruited from Mother's International School in Delhi at the age of like, I know it, 16, to now have gone through undergraduate, graduate studies, multiple degrees, PhD holder, study abroad, everything. She has done everything right to be married, to get married in, in Italy and to be invited. It was, I think it was this the, the the best moment that I can actually I can I can share in terms of um, of the profession you've seen it all and the gratitude of the parents and and the families um, just with the the fact that you've impacted or you somehow help them get where they are and become that community member that they are it's 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 amazing like there are no words to describe how I felt to be part of of that celebration. This podcast is called Destiny Benders, as you know. And one of the things that we like to ask our guests and talk about are people in your life who have bent your destiny, people in your life who have changed your course in some way, changed your life. Obviously, it sounds like as an admissions, international admissions officer or working um, with students, you have changed many students' lives and bent their destinies. Can you give us an example of someone, if you look back on your life, who you've has had a real influence on you and you can look back at that person and say, if I had not met them, I wouldn't be where I am today or this wouldn't have happened. I can think of two people and they're the two people that played an, an integral part for me being here because they trusted me at a very young age to, to build and establish an office. Um, and I'll go back to my first institution, um, the current dean of admissions at Stony Brook, who's retiring next month, and, and the associate dean, so Judy Berhanen and, and um, Rob Perusati, who have done domestic admissions throughout the whole career. And they trusted me in such a short period of time that I started as a professional with them. Um, to say, well, you've done study abroad, you have a degree in anthropology, we have no international office, we get very few applications. Why don't you just take that on and see what we can do with it? And that was like 2002, 2003. I think without them, without their trust, without their um, belief in me, maybe they saw something that I did not see at that, at that stage. I probably would not have gotten into international education or international student recruitment. I might have stayed in domestic. I might have moved on to academic advising because that was also something that I was thinking and, and considering like student affairs. 
uh, probably would not have stayed in enrollment management if it wasn't for them. And of course, along the way, you meet colleagues, you you meet students, you meet your your team members who who change you, and you evolve constantly, constantly. This I think we are a continuous students. You can never stop learning, and the world changes. The world changes. Education evolves. And, and you continue to, to learn and grow. So we all impact our lives, each other's lives one way or, or another. And in our field are some great, great colleagues, some of which you've hosted in your podcast. I mean, John Wilkerson, for crying out loud, I texted him and I said, I need to pick your brain about, you know, X, Y, Z. And it could be in the middle of the night. And, you know, there are individuals like John, that you know, inspires you to be a better person, a better professional. You know, so well put. You're absolutely right. And, and I love what you talked about. You're a student for life and you're always learning. So in that context, as a professional for 20 plus years in the field, you must have seen a lot, right? I mean, you have seen a lot, a lot of changes, especially with the pandemic the last couple of years in multiple right. roles, multiple countries. So can you maybe share some of your thoughts on what you see has happened in the most recent past? Where do you see the field of international education, particularly on the recruitment admission side going with everything that's happening in the world right now? Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think there's a lot of uh, positives that came out of, uh, out of the pandemic uh, in terms of education. So for admissions and recruitment, just the fact that you'll, you'll be able to do a lot of activities online and really reach a wider audience or more diverse audience without the, the added stress on, on travel or you're adding stress to your budget. Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm in a different situation right now, but I, I know that some of my colleagues have had budget cuts because of the pandemic, or they've lost uh, team members because of the pandemic. Uh, so now it gives us the opportunity to do a lot more online recruitment. Not that we probably didn't exist before, but but we all were out on the road. So I think that being a positive change of the pandemic, uh, or really thinking how we can change education overall, more of like that online learning, for example, and, and what clicks for new generations. Nothing is going to take away the person-to-person -person interaction, and that's important for many countries and many cultures. The networking. I mean, we we were at NAFSA, you know, in May, and we were all craving to see each other in person and 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 have those conversations. And that's that's never that's never going to go away. But now we have an opportunity to uh, diversify how we do recruitment and how we do outreach. So that's that's one in terms of enrollment management or give opportunities to other other countries and, and be part of really making an impact, especially with what's happening around the world, what's happening in Europe, universities that are more generous with their funding. I think they'll have opportunities to diversify their, their enrollment pool. And, and this is a great thing to do because this is what education is all about, helping others, making an impact, investing your resources to those who then are going to go out and make the changes in the world. Who knows who's going to take a, a Ukrainian student next year who then will turn out to be the next Minister of Foreign Affairs, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. And it sounds like well, you've you know, been in the field for 20 years. It sounds like you have a, a really good head on your shoulders, lots of thought going into your responses to our question. How about that new person who is where you were, you know, 20 years ago, coming into the field, just starting out graduating and thinking they want to go into a career in international education? What kind of share some of your thoughts or some advice you might give to that person, particularly as someone now who's moved from the U.S. to Saudi? That's something that a lot of people who work in international education, they they go from one country to another. They change jobs and change countries, change continents, change cultures. You've done that yourself. Do you have any advice or thoughts or tips for someone just starting out and wanting that same kind of a, a life as you have? I think now young professionals are very fortunate. The fact that you can study higher education administration and not just learn it on the go uh, adds to to their um, gives them an edge in terms of uh, where they they start. My advice will be patience. Be patience with uh, with how you grow with how you interact with how you what direction you'd want your office to 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 take with everyone that you um you meet um the students the families just being patient and be grateful for for what you you're given and what you presented is um is is important I would also advise that maybe think about how you can grow moving from one institution, from one organization to the other. And uh, many, many of us, uh, many colleagues have been in institutions for a number of years. And it's it's great because you gave us the opportunity to build an office from the ground up, grow within one institution. Uh, but sometimes you don't grow fast enough. So my advice would be be patient. And look at opportunities elsewhere, not jump around constantly, because also that's not viewed very positively. But once you build a solid program, uh, maybe that's an opportunity to then go and, and, and replicate that somewhere else or learn new things by going somewhere else. And if you have the opportunity to be abroad, it's a gift. So give that gift to yourself by living abroad for a couple of years or or make the most of your travels um, when you recruit students. You know, and the other thing that you were talking about earlier is that when administrators might not be willing to be supportive uh, or be willing to do new policies or introduce new policies or whatever, what advice would you give these young professionals to navigate that? aspect of their job? Good question. Patience? Patience, maybe. <laughs> I I mean, something that I don't always like is use data. It's not something I've done all the time. I know that is very much liked and preferred by senior leadership to, to prove what, you know, what you're, you know, what you want to accomplish is show numbers. It works for them. It probably does not work for us in admissions because we we know, you know, yes, obviously you build a strategy based on data and what works well, but then you also have that gut feeling that, you know, I don't have data to show going in X country, but I know it's going to work. So data examples of some, you know, institute, what institutions you your organization aspires to be. Don't act on impulse. That's also an advice that I would give. 
in meetings, in replying to emails. Don't act on impulse. Be patient. And things will fall into place. Oh, for sure. For it sure. all works out. It all works out. And if it, if it doesn't, that, then maybe it's not meant. There you go. Wow. Very zen. <laughs> Very zen of you. Um, I, so right before we started recording, Stav, you were telling me about the program that you're just managing you at Students. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that. I'm so curious and interested in what you're doing to, like you said, to encourage students to come into areas that are you know of demand, but they may not be thinking about. So maybe paint the picture of what it is that you're doing, because I think it's a great idea. So what I do at the KAUST, or King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, is quite different from what I've done in the U.S. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for being here because I think I wouldn't have been exposed to these opportunities. Um, I don't do admissions. All decisions are handled by faculty. We're a graduate-only institution. Uh, my focus is to recruit Saudi students only. So I do the equivalent of domestic admissions where I started 22 years ago. I am back to that. So recruiting Saudi students from in Kingdom universities or bringing back the Saudis who are overseas to study. We only have a PhD and, and master's to study at the institution. So really kind of getting that brain gain in in the country because there is an international competitive institution in the kingdom. So that's one aspect, the recruitment and the fostering relationships and partnerships within kingdom universities and industries as well. We're very close with Aramco, with Sabic, uh, some of the, the ministries to recruit um, their, um, their employees. That's one part. The other part is development programs where you bridge, you bridge the gaps that exist in Saudi higher education, tertiary education, with what's expected of um, international graduate education. We're very based on American Caltech system and, and getting those students graduate school ready, either by upskilling their math skills, they are science skills. But what we um, concluded actually yesterday, and I'm still receiving messages on our WhatsApp group with the students, it was a two-week plant science program, plant science being underrepresented by Saudi students on campus. Um, we brought mostly undergraduates, but fresh graduates on campus to do intensive research on plant science, on arid agriculture. Um, one of the objectives of Vision 2030, being a diverse, knowledge-based, sustainable economy, uh, feeding the world and, and seeing how the country, what the country can produce. So these are students who worked on uh, growing Plants, for example, that get watered by salt water. We're right by the Red Sea. That's our biggest laboratory. It gets them all excited to think fields outside of the typical STEM. Um, a biologist can really look into genetics for, for plants. Mechanical engineer can help the plant scientists build their equipment. Computer scientists can help them uh, uh, analyze their data and so on. Or like ancient DNA, for example, on um, crops that don't uh, don't exist anymore, but 
helpful in the future if we run out of food, right? Yeah, no wonder you've been there for six years. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it's it's great. It's never a dull moment. It's about cultivating the next generation of Saudis. And as an expat, I take pride in that because I get to contribute in a, I impact a country that is not my own, but I see the the fruits of, of our labor and the students work uh, almost instantly, instantly. This is a young country. Uh, once they graduate with a master's or a PhD, they're taken up by several organizations in the kingdom. It's absolutely fascinating. I've just been, yeah, listening to you and we've had many guests on this podcast, um, but I, what you're doing is very different from, you know, what some of the other guests that we've talked to. So I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And as Girish said, no wonder you've been there for six coming on seven years, but there's going to be, and you know, you're still young. There's going to be a next step for you, unless, I don't know, maybe you will spend the rest of your days in, <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. But what do you think of as your next step when you think about your career and where do you go from here? Um, have you got any thoughts about what you'd like to do next or go next? It's a very good question. I think I'm at the stage of my career that I have started thinking about it. And, and NAFSA inspired me. And, and that's what I, I went to NAFSA after we took a two-year break from in-person conferences to, to, to see where is the profession in the U.S., around the world, and and uh, do I still feel the same about being in enrollment management and international education? Um, and, and NAFSA really did exactly what I, I was hoping would happen to motivate me to continue being in this field and inspired me uh, to, to look at opportunities. I think um, six years is a long time. I do see myself at some point coming back in the States. I'd, I'd like to be back in the States and be back home anywhere. But I guess when the moment is right or the moment the opportunity presents itself, I'll know. What I don't have here is the controversial conversations, the interactions with colleagues, making decisions in terms of you know, immigration changing education. I change, I impact individuals in a different way, but um, it's a small country, not many, many institutions, but all really with different missions and visions. And, um, and having those controversial conversations sometimes is what I, I miss. Uh, I also, I think I'm driven not just by cultivating the next, the, the next generation, but having the opportunity to mentor and coach young professionals the way I was coached and mentored over the years. And, and, and I feel that maybe I'm at that stage where I'd like to give more back to, to the field by doing that. So inshallah, as we, as we say here, uh, maybe I'll have that opportunity <laughs> and, and perhaps do that in the States. We'll, we'll see. Stavi, if I may ask you to, could you share a little bit about being a woman living in Saudi? Mm -hmm. uh, because I think there's a global perspective or at least an understanding, yeah. limited understanding of what it is, right? We only yeah. read what we read and see what we see. Right, right. So could you share your thoughts and experiences? Because our, I think our global audience would be very interested yeah. in hearing. 
Well, the country has gone through a lot of changes. It's not the country I, I was introduced to back in 2009 was my first time here. And, and, and actually, I was on a trip my first time here with Joseph Humadi, <laughs> US, uh, U.S. educational group. It's a completely different country. I feel um, things have changed, have changed for, for women, for sure. And it's not the little things like we can drive now. Yes, that's exciting. And um, is is how women are making a change in the country. I work for a STEM graduate institution. 40% of our students are women. And they continue with their education. They're very serious students. And they continue their education through terminal degrees. Now, these women are the next leaders of the huge organizations, Aramco, SABEC. They are in the ministries. They are faculty members. They're researchers. There are a lot of opportunities for them here. So if someone has not been in Saudi, I highly recommend it to visit Saudi for many reasons, for culture, for tourism. And there are a lot a lot to see in, in the country. The topography changes throughout the country. It's not one, one desert. We get all four seasons. It's just uh, the temperature a little higher. I mean, maybe it's like 90 degrees outside right now. But, you know, we have mild winters and up north it snows. And down south, you have high altitude and, and greenery. Women are leading the way in, this, in, in the country. They're holding leadership positions in, across any any sectors and we're not covered. I, I do I think it's important for me to mention that because I get that question a lot and you see that with young Saudi women too. Um, so it is come recruit the students, the undergraduates keep the graduates for us. Um, so come recruit the undergraduate students, come see the country for yourself because this is really the place to the place to be. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate you sharing those thoughts because it's important, I think, to get yeah. the message across because we don't get that true message. Uh, from and and thank you for, for asking that question. To know. Yeah, it was very helpful to hear that, actually. It was, it was good to get a firsthand perspective. It's important. Uh, but as we always do, we want to kind of wrap up on a lighter sure. note. Uh, and I'll, I'll ask you my first quick fire question. Ooh, okay. You've traveled the world, right? You've been in, I don't know how many countries you've spent, you know, years worth of time on planes and trains and automobiles. So what are three tips you would give in terms of traveling efficiently and smartly? I'm, I'm, I'm known to shop everywhere I go. So I don't know if I can, I can really give uh, <laughs> advice in terms of being efficient. I would say, even if it's a short visit, because we're in and out of countries, make the most of it. So if you need to sacrifice an evening where you feel tired, don't be quick to go back to the hotel. Spend time to explore the city or really take in the culture as much as you can. It's important. That will get you far. Unlike of what I do, travel light. I don't do that till this day. I don't do that, but do travel light. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> At week three or four, that luggage is going to feel heavier than it actually is. Travel with a group of, of colleagues that you enjoy traveling with at first before you venture out. I think it's important to really have that support 
when, you know, being away from home, sometimes you feel down, you're exhausted, but having traveling with colleagues that you, you, um, you enjoy being, being around is, is important. And these are individuals that they're long lasting friendships. And they're the ones that are going to understand you because sometimes we come home and our families and our friends from home don't understand what we're talking about. That's some really good advice. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that one. Um, My quick fire question for you is, uh, like you, I have lived abroad and I know when I'm living from somewhere, somewhere else where I, that's not home, whatever home is. Um, I'm always craving something. There's like this one thing or a couple of things, food usually, you know, craving some kind of a food. So you've been in Saudi Arabia now for six years. What do you crave? What do you crave from home? One food or some, something that you just want to get your hands on? Two things. Chinese food. That's my comfort food. I grew up in a very Asian community. I was probably, my family was probably one of the few families, Greek American families that lived in in an Asian community. So Chinese food, that's the first thing I, when I go home, I get home, I leave my luggage, I go to my Chinese takeout and parks. I grew up in New York city. So our, playground my brother mine and my brother's playground were new york city parks mm-hmm. you know, no mountains no you know after we left greece we weren't visiting the country for some time or not often it was expensive for a family of four to to travel overseas mm-hmm. so we made the most of new york city parks that, mm-hmm. that was our babysitter yeah. <laughs> wow you know things that you didn't even think about right like yeah that that's what you miss oh. yes yeah. Um, last question, since you speak so highly of India, and I'm so happy to hear that you love India. Um, what's your favorite place in India? What's your favorite dish? Oh, let's see. Favorite place, Mumbai and Bangalore. Um, and and both, both of them, well, Bangalore for, it's cool. You know, it's just like the weather is nice. The climate is nice. I like the temperature there. I've, you know, I've had friends who live there and and Mumbai for the vibrant community. Just walking up and down Nariman Point is and just taking it all in and see people walking up and down. It's, um, it's, yes, it's busy. And you might not think of it as a place where you can go and relax. But if you tune out the noise, it's really an amazing city to be in. In terms of dish, paneer makhni is my favorite. We have an Indian restaurant at Kaust and they don't make that anymore. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're going to make it because that's my favorite one. It's not on the menu, but that's what I want. And they're like, sure, ma'am. Yes, we'll do that. But uh, but yeah, Paneer Magni and um, Bangalore and Mumbai. Uh, you know, hey, maybe you don't know this. I, I see a future for you in India. I, I, I can totally, totally. See you, right? Yeah. Can you imagine totally. like all these yeah. upcoming universities in India would need a seasoned mm-hmm. international professor, uh, professional like you? So I'll uh, I'll put some <laughs> feelers out there for you. So inshallah, you never know. Inshallah, but exactly. You, you never, never know. Where life never takes know. you. <laughs> Just go with but, the flow, take it all in. <laughs> exactly. 
Staff, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us today. I know it's late on a Friday evening for you, but this was brilliant. Thanks for sharing everything. Thank you to everyone who who listens to your podcast, and I I certainly have listened to your podcast. Uh, you know, and 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 it's nice to also hear from some of uh, my colleagues, those who I inspired to be that you've hosted over time. You've been listening to Destiny Benders. Join us next week when we speak with Lakshmi Kumar, founder and director of the Orchid School in Pune. Music